If you love all things gardening, why not join us at our Spring Fair from the 3rd to the 5th of May at Bewley in Hampshire. You'll find everything you need to kickstart the season. Find out more at bbcgardenersworldfair.com. See you there. This episode is brought to you by the Inspire Collection by Kalia. Just because you're working out doesn't mean you shouldn't look fabulous. The Inspire Collection by Kalia was designed with both style and performance in mind. It looks good, feels good, and stays put no matter how you move. And the collection has everything you need for a day at the gym. A support bra, crop tanks, bike shorts, amazing leggings, and more. It's their most versatile collection yet. Shop the Inspire Collection by Kalia now, exclusively at Dick's Sporting Goods. Hello, and welcome to the BBC Gardener's World magazine podcast, brought to you by the team here at the magazine. Join us as we chat all things gardening with the nation's favourite experts. Having clean air to breathe seems quite vital to our very existence, but pollution is a problem in many parts of the world. Cities in particular are choking. Is there a solution? Could our gardens, plants, trees be the answer in solving this crisis. Hello, I'm Adam Frost, and today I'm talking to Professor Jennifer Gabries, the Chair in Media, Culture and Environment at the University of Cambridge. Jennifer knows rather a lot about the role of plants, pollution and the air that we breathe. Jennifer, lovely to meet you. Um, thank you very much for coming on and talking about well, something that's quite precious to all of us, clean air to breathe. But before we get stuck into that and the importance of our gardens and how that can help, just tell me a little bit about you, I suppose your past, you know, how you've arrived, you know, being at Cambridge University and, and what started this passion that, because I'm obvious it is a passion. Just tell me a bit about it. Yeah, well, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be in conversation about gardens and, and air pollution. I'm I'm currently working at Cambridge as a chair in media, culture and environment in the Department of Sociology. But I do have a background in landscape architecture, which I practiced for several years uh, in the U.S. and um, this really did inform the way that I approach academic research, which is engaged with environments, but also really looks at how to bring publics into research. So I think this is where perhaps we'll have a chance to talk today about the work that I've done working with publics to build air quality gardens and to really think about air quality in environments, uh, especially using digital technology, but not only. So my work is really about environments, social life and technology and looking at how those intersect to ideally make uh, better environments, more livable environments. Yeah, cool. So the moment you've said landscape architecture and you said America, actually in reality, the first person that popped into my head was Lawrence Holprin. Mm. Mm-hmm. There you go. It's American architect that, you know, landscape architect that I really love. So when you first started there, you know, was the first part of your work a lot about air quality or was it just about creation and then it sort of led to the air quality? It was really about cities, I would say. Yeah. I was working um, in different urban environments. The last place I worked was Los Angeles, before that, uh, Minneapolis. And I was really 
absorbed with urban life and how to make more livable cities, um, as well as large waste landscapes. I did work on the, the Fresh Kills landfill competition with one of the firms I worked with, and I was fascinated by pollution and waste and how that transformed landscapes uh, over time and, and how to really work with these spaces that might be degraded uh, and to make other kinds of environments from them. Because, of course, a landfill like Fresh Kills is yeah. shifting and changing uh, over decades, really, and off-gassing uh, methane yeah. or methane and really changing form. So uh, I suppose all of these things assembled into my interest in collective environments and how they're changing, how they're polluted and and how to make them different kinds of spaces really. Yeah. So, so in a sense, during that sort of uh, that journey of discovery, you know, the, the sort of the role that plants and trees play, did it just build and you just got to a point of realizing how important it was? Was it, you know, was it a gradual thing or was it something you started from? I think there was an interesting moment when I really became aware of of plants as sensors. And it was when I was in, uh, I, had, I had already received my PhD and I was looking at digital technologies in a field site in California, um, in the mountains. And there was an extensive uh, digital sensor test bed at this experimental uh, landscape there. And there was a, a boulder, a granite boulder covered with moss. And there was a web camera and an infrared camera and a weather station and all of these sensors monitoring this moss uh, on a boulder. And it's then that I was realizing as I was in the site doing field work and reading was that digital sensors were effectively sensing the sensors. They were sensing what plants were doing as they were responding to their environments. So this was a way to understand uh, rainfall and heat levels and uh, climate change, even with data sets wow. that were collected over time. So this was really fascinating. And I, I then looked at how moss and lichens, for instance, are absorbing air quality and signaling changes in environments. And, and then it sort of kicked off an interest in plants as biosensors, but that this kind of awareness is something that you could be brought to through digital sensors, uh, through the ways that you can really understand plants better uh, by monitoring them with different kinds of digital sensors. Yeah. So when you came to the UK, was was that already work you were doing or is that a lot of the work you've done since you've been here? So what what's your sort of role now you're here? Yes, that's what I've done uh, since I've been here. So I've maintained a, a kind of um, relationship across the US and UK. Uh, when I was doing that work in the mountains in California, I was already based then at Goldsmiths, uh, teaching design and environment uh, at that time. So this was uh, part of a research project that I was getting off the ground, looking at sensors, which then became a much bigger set of initiatives, um, including a research project called Citizen Sense, which works with communities to, to monitor environments. So that, that work has really developed while being in the UK, which I think has been a great place to develop this practice-based research since there is so much of this work really um, integrated within academic life. Yeah. So when, when we're talking about sensors, just on a really basic level, so I uh, this year at the Chelsea Flower Show, I walked into a garden that had been created inside a building and they had literally 
heart monitors, little heart pads on plants. And actually, as these plants reacted, there was a musician making music from the plants. So there was picking up and sensing what was going on in the plant. So in my sort of simple take on things, what you're doing is the same but different, but you're you're sensing what the plant's doing, reacting to the environment that it's in. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. So there are different ways of sensing plants. What you're describing is sort of electrical activity that a sensor might pick up and then you can translate that uh, acoustically. I mean, I was just seeing something on Twitter, um, someone making music from mushrooms, uh, you know, so picking up electrical activity of uh, mushrooms and turning that into a composition. But uh, many sensors, uh, for instance, uh, even a camera could be understood to be a sensor, Uh, air pollution sensors, weather stations that have temperature, humidity, wind speed, and direction. These are all ways of monitoring environments and looking at how plants are um, responding to environmental cues along with these other sensor variables is a way to understand how plants are are responding to environmental conditions and what they like, what they don't like, um, what sorts of communities they grow in as a a response to environmental conditions and how that could also be a way of understanding how to modify environments and or how to work with plants in these different environmental conditions. Yeah, because I mean, I've been doing some work on on woodlands and inner city woodlands, and I know there's lots of research done about sort of temperature control, you know, sort of inside a woodland, outside a woodland, the fact that in the spring, they can sit the same sort of level as just outside. But actually, as the summer develops, the temperature within inside the woodland. So you're taking that sort of information, understanding it and taking it to another level, I presume. Yeah. Well, I suppose, yeah, especially with that, with the air pollution research, it's to yeah. um, really understand how pollution can inform the distribution of plant communities and Um, In some cases, even how plants can mitigate or um, absorb pollution. So there's, I think there's interesting ways in which to think about plants as participants, uh, not just sort of a static backdrop, uh, but actually involved in making our environments. Yeah, it's it's fascinating because all this series of podcasts has been health and well-being and, and actually, I think the idea of fresh air is maybe something that too many have taped for granted. I mean, the work that you're doing, how is it perceived, you know, when you're talking, I suppose, to the public? Well, I, mean, I think publics are very interested in uh, these sorts of approaches yeah. to air quality and gardening because it's very uh, sort of accessible and something they can engage in. I mean, the problem of air pollution is obviously vast and it's difficult to know what to do about it, especially when it is potentially tied to fossil fuel polluting infrastructure and buildings and heating and large infrastructures that are really difficult to know how to change. But gardening is something that people feel they can approach and uh, participate in in a way that also allows them to contribute to built environments. So, um, you know, much of the research we've done has actually shown how people are already engaged in air quality gardens and making their own air quality gardens. Um, And some of the projects we've done have actually learned from what publics are already doing to develop our own uh, sorts of projects. 
So with that in mind, if I started sort of, you know, if I was someone at home, I was about to create a new garden and actually one of the things I was interested in was was the air quality, you know, how would you suggest that I went around setting that garden up? When you're talking about sort of plant communities, what to plant together, what not to plant together, you know, how would you suggest that I went about setting this garden up? Well, we've actually made a, a toolkit. It's called the Phytosensor Toolkit. And this yeah. was done in a project with the Museum of London and the City of London as part of a low emission neighborhood uh, project, which had funding from the um, mayor of London. Yeah. And the toolkit has a number of plants that are known to be air pollution absorbing or capturing plants. And it also includes scenarios for how you might plant. And so we tested this out in a few demonstrator gardens. We worked with a landscape architect uh, group called Grow Elephants. Um, And we also learned a lot from the Barbican Residents Association, which had built their own air quality gardens in the area. So what we found from doing this research and learning about different plant types is that Um, You know, there are many different plants that absorb pollution, but what's really key is to think about plants, not just as a, you know, an air purifying machine that will absorb uh, pollution, but to plant them in a kind of architectural way that um, even an infrastructural way where if you have a garden on a busy road, then, you know, it would make sense to plant something like a green screen with ivy, which is well known to be yeah. a plant that can filter and capture particulate matter, for instance. Similarly, you could think of other kinds of, of vines, uh, even planted in with ivy, um, to make that a kind of dense barrier, really, to pollution sources. Yeah. At the same time, you know, plants grow in communities. So planting things yeah. like uh, hebes are quite interesting to plant in, in drifts and to really grow those with other types of plants to, to create kinds of massing and, and density that will um, really improve biodiversity in some cases um, and create cooling effects as well while uh, creating massing. So I think what's interesting when you plant for air quality is you start to think more about the ecologies and relationships of how air pollution can become a problem as well, because you're trying to create shade, you're trying to bring temperature down, um, capture water and pollutants. So it creates a kind of environment that ends up being, I think, more livable for for urban uh, spaces, um, even if it's your, your own garden or a community garden. Um, because yeah. it's creating a whole mosaic of, of effects. Um, so in a way, if I created a garden in, in a layer system, balance of trees, shrubs, herbaceous planting, but but not just thinking about, you know, what it looks, but actually how it makes me feel comfortable, safe, all those things will start to air-wise will improve the environment. Yes, that and I think it's nice to think about gardening for the atmosphere as much as gardening for the ground. Um, yeah. And what would that look like if we were to really tune in to how plants have been making atmospheres for hundreds of millions of years? And without plants, we wouldn't yeah. have the oxygen-rich environments that we have. We wouldn't have the carbon uh, storage that they provide. Um, so how can we think about gardening with their atmospheric qualities and really creating spaces that are as much attending 
to the air um, as uh, to the ground. At the same time, I should note that some plants do also uh, create uh, bio, what's called biogenic volatile organic compounds or VOCs. And, you know, this is interesting because that's what gives plants their aroma. You know, it's not hazardous in itself, yeah. but VOCs can react with nitrogen oxides, which is a common urban pollution source from traffic and buildings and so on. So when VOCs and NOx combine, they create ozone with the presence of heat and sunlight. So this is, you know, where some plants can actually exacerbate air pollution in certain conditions. So if I was planting really scented plants next to a busy road, that could be a negative. Well, it's not necessarily plants uh, that are scented because no. many plants have uh, different scents, but it's ones that have higher levels of biogenic VOCs. And you can right. find lists of these. In fact, I think we have yep. a, a list in the appendix to the phytosensor toolkit um, of plants that have higher levels of VOC. So an example is oak trees, you know, have yep. which are lovely um, and and great to plant in many locations, but they do have uh, higher uh, levels of biogenic VOCs. So you would want to think carefully about using oak trees as street trees in a in an urban yeah. canyon, for instance. Um, if you had a very busy road uh, that tended to have uh, high pollution events and also potentially had high ozone events. You'd want to think twice about planting um, something that would contribute to higher levels of VOCs and ozone there. So it's choosing the right plant for the right place. But I was going to say, that's exactly what I was going to say. This really takes right plant, right place to a completely different level, doesn't mm -hmm. it, really? We're really thinking about how it benefits or affects our environment. And I suppose when you're looking at things like trees, you know, we're not talking about a, a short-term add to a you know to a park to a city to a to a garden so yeah that's really quite in a lot of ways that's quite mind-blowing that is a sort of you know that is a principle so with the work that you've done I mean obviously I've done quite a lot of work on biosecurity and and the problems that our wooded stock are facing in this country and and pests and diseases how does that sit with you when we're talking about we're planted in communities because I as a designer are sort of on this journey of communities of particular species I was always comfortable with and now I worry a lot more about that because I I worry that I need more diversity and less community so I personally am at this sort of I'm slightly wobbly on some of the decisions I made does that make sense well I think this is an important question in the context of our changing environments um, that are increasingly um, heating up and are uh, becoming drier in many places, uh, including in the UK, and how this can affect uh, plants. So back to the California mountains example, there were a number of trees there that had uh, infestations of pine bark beetle because of increasing temperature and drought which made them more vulnerable to pest infestations. So how is it possible then to think about planting, not just for the now, but for yeah. future and changing climates and the different conditions that um, we might encounter, not even quite knowing what those will be. And I think this is where diversity is important, but also anticipating 
that these these will be hotter, drier uh, yeah. climates, and thinking about how to really plant for these conditions in ways that also anticipate that that will create more polluted atmospheres um, because when you have hotter, drier conditions, you also will tend to have more air pollution. So how is it possible to mitigate, anticipate, and transform environments for these different conditions we find ourselves in because pests will and diseases will continue to be um, a problem? Yeah, I mean, you've only got to sort of look at, you know, something like, I don't know, Zyella that's caused all the problems down in Italy. And we talk about that not being successful over here. But then if we carry on having the summers that, you know, we've just had and it keeps eventually that sort of stuff arrives, doesn't it? And and the diversity of plants that something like that now affects. And I think that for me is the fascinating bit at the moment as a gardener, that, that crossroads and what should I plant? So... In a way, when I'm selecting, what I'm doing is probably pushing the boundaries a little bit more, taking a bit more risk as to as to what might survive the winters. I'm still putting in natives and, and things that I know are tough plants. So would you sort of think that actually the research that you're doing, that that's maybe the right direction to go in, that sort of balance between what m- might work against what's working now? Well, I think the interesting thing about the air quality gardens work that we've done, um, which was very much engaged with publics, is we took a very experimental approach to it. So the gardens themselves were demonstrator plots, and we were testing out plants and then holding workshops and walks with people to see what sorts of plants and scenarios they would propose. I think this kind of strategy could also be brought to a a broader set of considerations for how to plant uh, in the changing environments and climates that we find ourselves in, um, to take a kind of demonstrator approach to see what works uh, and to adapt. uh, Because it it won't be a matter of working to a formula. Um, It really will be about trying to find what works, what kinds of communities do uh, establish and and over time and what sorts of effects do they have and and what sorts of changes might also need to be made and how can publics really be brought into that to think about these as sort of expanding green infrastructures that we'll need to be creating uh, over time to um, really address uh, our, our changing climates. So in a way, you know, for gardeners in the UK, we can affect massively and we can help but also we could be part of the experimental process yes i think absolutely and this is where um you know what was interesting with the project we did with the museum of london was people were really interested and invested in testing things out and we learned a lot from um in this case the barbican residents association had yeah. already done some work and they brought lots of resources that uh, they had established through their own tests and experiments. And here's where uh, it was interesting to see how they they drew on the city of London um, as a source of um, sort of resources and and, uh, information. But they were also working with uh, construction companies and developers in the area to have supplies donated. They worked with a a newly set up um, design firm to develop an experimental garden Uh, So I think more of these kinds of projects where community gardens are really test sites uh, where people can 
learn about how to influence the built environment and then also bring that understanding and knowledge to their own gardens, if they're lucky enough to have them, uh, to think about how to respond to our changing environments. Lovely. So what what you're saying in a way is actually us designers, landscape designers or whatever, if we're slightly more experimental in, in, our, in our urban spaces and our open spaces, that can then start to educate our gardeners at home. So actually, some of this responsibility should be on, I suppose, the industry in a way to, to push a little bit and, and create spaces that, that really start to inform. Yes, but I think in involving publics uh, really from the start. So yeah. um, rather than uh, seeing it necessarily as experts telling yeah. uh, publics what to do, publics already have so much uh, knowledge of, of what works. And, you know, especially after the last few years of hot, dry uh, weather that we've had over the last sort of five, six years um, in and out uh, in varying conditions. I know I've, I've lost uh, a lot of plants and have had to test yeah. what works and what doesn't. So bringing this almost into a, a space of open air uh, classrooms or test sites yeah. where people can exchange knowledge um, and, and really start to create a set of shared resources for what works and how this can really create a kind of larger uh, impact on built environments. I think that could be really exciting. Yeah, I, I'm smiling. So that definitely, I, for me, that I think with a lot of gardeners, I think at home, we there's a bit of a fear factor with gardening. People worry about getting things wrong, making mistakes. Um, you know, this doesn't grow that well, this dies, and there's this instant sort of, but actually in reality, you know, for all of us to 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 actually, you know, stick our chests out and say, no, I, I'm I'm going to be part of this experiment. I'm going to sort of be part of this journey as to what, you know, my kids, my grandkids, my great-grandkids might be seeing are going to be some of the things that I've planted. That that's a, That's a far more positive way of looking at it as well, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think we're at a, a moment when environments are changing. So how can we really think about how to respond to that in a way that ensures a kind of planetary flourishing um, and um, that that is something we see as a something we can contribute to in a positive way despite the scope of the challenges yeah. and also to ensure environments can become more equitable because, of course, yeah. air pollution is unevenly distributed. So yeah. how can we really look at our environments as opportunities to address those imbalances um, and really start gardening in areas where it might be needed most of all. Yeah, which makes an awful lot of sense, that balance between the built and the green. And yeah, it makes perfect sense. But also as well, I think, you know, what's the biggest changes you've seen? What's the bit, you know, where you've experimented and, and you know, how big a difference are the plants that, that are put in, you know, making to the air? You know, what's the biggest jump you've seen? Most of the research I've done with the Citizen Sense project has actually been installing air quality sensors right. uh, in different environments. So one of the projects we did, we installed uh, probably around 30 sensors, particulate matter sensors in Southeast London, in Deptford and New yeah. Cross. And uh, people were hosting the sensors, using the sensors, looking at the data. And we did this for about uh, 10 months um, in varying locations. And what was really fascinating about our findings was that, of course, we saw high levels of pollution in the places you would expect, yeah. traffic intersections. Yeah. 
Um, and uh, surprisingly, also at the River Thames uh, from the ship diesel that's used on the wow. river yeah. traffic. But we saw very low levels of pollution in some gardens uh, that were also on uh, pedestrian streets. So there was one location in particular was um, New Crossgate Trust Site. It was a school for early years, and they had a very well-planted-out garden um, with a tree-lined street, and it was really just bursting with different kinds of vegetation. And we found the lowest levels of air pollution in our entire network, even though this site was only a few blocks from the A2. Um, and so you would have expected to see much higher levels of pollution. So I think what was really interesting about that is how, again, you can sense the sensors. You can you can install perhaps a kind of ad hoc situational air quality sensor network to understand what's working, what isn't, and make modifications in the built environment to try to address pollution hotspots to improve the built environment um, and perhaps even look at where uh, individual gardens might be having a, a big impact and, and look at how to scale that uh, in different ways. So this is something I think would be really interesting to develop further uh, to answer your question that I've probably been most surprised by. It wasn't a direct intervention in the sense of designing a garden, yeah. but rather looking at things that people had already done and seeing yeah. what was already making uh, a massive contribution and could be developed further. Yeah. So in a, in a sense, it's, it's just, you know, that balance of planting. If I try to simplify, I suppose, all this and I, you know, I was coming to you and saying, you know, look, Jennifer, I'm going to plant this new garden up. You know, I live near a road. It's reasonably busy. I want to sort of create something beautiful for my family and myself, but also I, I want to do my bit. What what sort of simple guidance would you give me? Obviously, over a nice glass of wine that I would provide you with, obviously. But you know, what, how would you set me up? How would you set me off to to try and, you know, play my part in the experiment? Well, I really have to say that there's a caveat, which is reducing emissions at source is the best thing yeah, to do. Yeah. And atmospheric scientists will say this until they're blue in the face. Um, you know, planting is a mitigating measure. It doesn't yeah. uh, reduce emissions at source. But if you find yourself um, in a situation where you are looking for things to do in the meantime, um, mm. Hopefully, you know, that planting will also improve uh, cyclability, walkability, uh, yeah. things that will bring down emissions from traffic, for instance. Really look at where are the emissions coming from? What kinds of emissions are they? Um, if you're able to understand, you know, are they nitrogen oxide? Are they particulate matter? Are they ozone? Can you really start to understand where those emissions are coming from? And uh, pick the plants that would be best for the kinds of um, pollutants that, that are in the area. Look at the conditions as well in terms of heat, sunlight, and other things that might affect the way that the plants grow. And really look at the, at the architecture of the site and how you could perhaps mass uh, the correct kind of plants for the conditions um, to create a filter or a screen to uh, reduce the the temperature uh, of the site yeah. if that's relevant, potentially to improve the the water capture 
So there, I think it's really about the site, the site conditions, and how yep. the planting scenario is responding to that. So the Phytosensor Toolkit, which is available online yep. for free uh, through our Citizen Sense website and through the uh, Museum of London website, does propose a few scenarios just to get people thinking about how they might approach this. It has lists of plants that people are interested. It also has some of the scientific research that people have done um, on this topic. This was 2018, so it was a little while ago, and this topic has really taken off. It's, There's so much yeah, work it, now on green yeah. infrastructure. So I'm sure yeah. this is just a kind of stepping off point if people are interested, they could find yeah. many more and more current resources uh, as well. No, no, I'll make sure, we'll make sure the gardeners world audience gets a you know can get to a link on the website mm-hmm. and whatever and get to that information. But I, so for me, absolutely fascinating, and I've I've been on that. I suppose a lifetime. You know, I started gardening when I was sixteen years old, and and I've seen you know a change environmentally. I look back to being I don't know at college in in Devon and think I was taken as a sixteen year old into a into a ward garden and I was shown a calistemon, you know, a bottle brush on a wall. And I was told in the southwest of England that this is the only place you can grow this back against the wall because it wouldn't survive the winter. Fast forward, you know, 30-something odd years, I've planted one in the middle of Lincolnshire. It's totally and utterly all right, you know. I've planted a, a Lagostromia, which a plant that would never have survived where I live. And, and so... I understand that, and it's that sort of constant experimenting. But I think for me as well, the bit that's jumped out that you've said is is understanding what else these plants bring to the party. So now I know we, if you will, we have got nurseries that are that are looking at carbon lockdown of trees, you know, so you can get that sort of information. But wouldn't it be lovely to get to the place where? You know, when someone's walking into a even a garden centre, you know, they've got an understanding of what this plant can do because these plants are so powerful, aren't they? When you really think about it, you know, they're, they're as good for me as walking into a drugstore and buying something that's going to fix. So to have that information to hand would be so powerful, wouldn't it? I think absolutely. And that would be really incredible when you're looking for plants, you're also thinking about their different characteristics and um, making decisions, obviously, because it is an interesting plant, but uh, because it could potentially absorb pollution, it could absorb carbon, it could uh, aid water retention, it could contribute to shade, it could be good for drought uh, conditions if you don't want to have to water. I think these are the things that um, we'll really need to be thinking about and not seeing plants uh, only as kind of decorative. Um, Not that probably your listeners are thinking of plants in this way, but that plants are more than a a kind of decorative feature. They're really doing so much uh, for our environments and their participants in our um, environments in ways that can really uh, aid and contribute to how we respond to the environmental challenges we find ourselves in. Yeah, which is absolutely incredible. And I suppose we talk about the listeners, you know, and the gardeners at home. What's the simplest thing a gardener could do just to sort of, you know, as somebody that maybe has not got masses of space, but just feels like they want to they wanna play their part. They just want to do something. What would What would be the simplest suggestion you would make? Well, it depends. It depends on the kind of garden they have, the kind of situation they have. But I would say start uh, testing some air quality plants. I mean, most people already have ivy. 
somewhere. It's mm-hmm. uh, uh, pretty hard to avoid. So uh, start start to kind of pay attention to how its growth is potentially capturing and absorbing pollutants. You'll often, if you look closely at ivy, especially if it hasn't been raining, you'll see it has quite a lot of material on the surface, and that is yeah. um, capturing particulate matter. Um, it's capturing all kinds of debris. Um, most particulate matter is, you know, uh, very small, and you can't actually see it, but you can see the the kind of dust and um, debris that it's capturing and, and think much more microscopically about um, how it's filtering many different things from the air. So I would say just start to look at plants differently, look at them for all of these different contributions they're making and think about how to really approach a garden as green infrastructure that's joined up with many different spaces and and many different sorts of operations and ecologies. That's absolutely brilliant. I think what you've also started off, a lot of people in this country, a lot of gardeners are quite scared of ivy. (laughs) They don't even like it. So I think you might have just started a Love the Ivy campaign, which is absolutely brilliant. Do you know what, Jennifer, that's been absolutely fascinating for me and I, I hope for people at home it has, but it's it's really is just it's taking a step back and understanding that, you know, our gardens can play a huge part in our future and 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 to think about them not just as decorative spaces, but but spaces that improve our lives. Absolutely. And and to get to this topic of health, I think this is more important than ever because air pollution does ultimately uh, affect yeah. our health. And, you know, as scientists are increasingly saying, there's no safe level of, of air pollution, especially when it comes to pollutants like particulate matter. So this is about yeah. a kind of planetary health, which um, yeah. is more important than ever. Wow. Well, thank you very much. That's been absolutely fantastic. It's been great to speak to you. Thanks so much. Wow. I think if you'd have told the 16-year-old me that started on a parks department that we would think about creating gardens to help us breathe cleaner air, I would have not only not believed you, I would have been mortified. But in reality, if you look at our cities and some of our towns, And we see it pop up, don't we, on the news every now and then, you know, young people, asthma, and the effects that it can have on us. But I also think now we're in a place of obviously environmental change. The summer that we had last year, you know, the heat, but also biodiversity. And we're also in a place that... There's over 2,000 pests and diseases on death for lists and so many of our plants are under attack. You look at our oaks, you look at our larches, we can see what's happened to our ashes, a lot of our wooded stock. So I think as a garden designer, it really gets you thinking as to why am I creating a garden? Is it just for pure beauty or is it to aid somebody's life or are you even now creating a garden for another generation that all sounds a bit deep doesn't it but it definitely got me thinking so as you would imagine 
I went back to Jennifer and said, look, if you were going to create a garden that helped us breathe cleaner air, what would you do? How would you approach it? And the first thing she said, obviously, purpose, you know, so actually, why, you know, are you creating that garden? Well, interestingly, I've moved, as you know, taken on a front garden, it's on a road. So when I'm planting that, I'm going to deal with certain problems that are coming from the vehicles that come by. But also now if we open that up and not just think about the air that we breathe, have you got to create a garden that might be deals with flooding? And that idea of diversity, I think I was a designer that was taught about monocultures and how you know easy it was that less is more. Whereas now I'm creating gardens that are carry huge diversity and looking as to create gardens in layers, trees, shrubs, herbaceous plants and bulbs and corms. Well, there to develop that diversity so that actually if I end up with a problem, hopefully my garden can deal with it. So what I'm going to do now, if I'm in that opportunity, when I'm developing a garden for somebody that's maybe near a road in a city, a town, what I'll do is look at the plants that can help digest pollution ultimately, and I will add those plants to that garden. Yeah. Definitely gets you thinking, doesn't it? So in a sense, that idea of purpose, why are you creating a garden? Take that and make it bigger than just breathing clean air. Is it to deal with water runoff? Can you create shade, more diversity? I think in doing that, you look at my front garden, the moment that you hedge goes in, it screens from the road. You know that it's going to filter cars that come by. But what I can do over time is add other plants that are really going to help deal with that problem. And I suppose in a way, Jennifer talked to me as well about place. But I think, me being me, I think I might have already talked about that in the first idea of, of purpose. Yeah, so... So purpose, place, and then plants. And I think this is the fascinating bit about us all doing a little bit more research about the plants that we add to our gardens. I mean, did you know you can now get information about carbon lockdown and trees? So should you plant a tree that's only going to last 15, 20 years? Or should you plant a tree that's going to last 100 years? There's all these different elements now that come into your head when you're creating a garden. So do some research. You know, it fascinated me. Things like silver birches were especially good at capturing particle matter. You know, wow. But also things like black elder, they absorb nitrogen dioxide. It's mind-blowing, isn't it? And you can find a load of this information online. I actually just typed in phytosensor toolkit and I got a website up that then started to give me a list of plants and more information. And, and I think that information will just start to develop and it's worth 
keeping an eye on it. Keep reviewing as you're adding plants to your garden, not just looking at the beauty, but also why are you adding the plants to your garden? I hope that one's given you something to think about because it definitely did me. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the BBC Gardener's World magazine podcast. So if you've enjoyed this episode, please tell others about it and rate us in your podcast provider app. And we'll see you next time.